Hey everyone, this is Will and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. If you follow the news closely, now only this is one of the crucial years for the largest economies in the world, which is China. But also it matters to a lot more countries in Southeast Asia, for example, the Philippines, Laos, Cambodia, last but not least, one of the well-known but interesting countries in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. Recently that we know this political and also economic partnership between Vietnam, specifically with the West and also the, with the European countries, topped the agenda. People are asking the question, what is the ultimate goal that for the Vietnamese government is trying to accomplish? But meanwhile, I think it's time that we need to take closer look regarding this internal policy or this internal affairs within this country. So that's why today, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite Dr. Zachary Abuza. And now Zach, it's a professor at the National War College in Washington, DC, where he focuses on Southeast Asia politics and security issues, including governance, insurgencies, democratization, and human rights. He's the author of five amazing books. Of course, his latest book is entitled Forging Peace in Southeast Asia, Insurgencies, Peace Processes, and Reconciliation. Now, without further ado, Zach, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you very much for having me. No problem, Zach. The pleasure's all mine. Now, again, as I mentioned before, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article that you wrote and is entitled Endemic Corruption and the Policy Impasses Are Holding Vietnam Back. Now, let's dive into this article right away. Now, my first question is, at the intro of the paragraph, excuse me, at the article, you mentioned this endemic corruption and economy was stuck between the plant and the market means that Vietnam now has a government that is unable to address a host of complex challenges. So for our viewers and for our audience, can you help us to understand how severe is the endemic corruption in Vietnam today? And why is it crucial that we need to pay attention to this matter? All right, let's start with the why it matters. The, the fact is Vietnam has gone from a, a, a very isolated, underdeveloped country to a very important player in the global economy right now. Mm -hmm. um, its economy in the past uh, a decade has doubled uh, to now almost $300 billion. Uh, as countries move to outsource or decouple from China and diversify their supply chains, more and more businesses want to be in Vietnam. Um, it's trade uh, has soared in recent years and, and there are still limits to their growth. They have a host of challenges, but uh, you know, it has a disciplined workforce, a well-educated workforce. Um, the country has largely made itself very uh, 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 open to foreign investors without some of the, the problems and challenges uh, uh, businessmen have had in, in China, though there are still many. Um, so Vietnam does matter on the global stage. For a country like the United States, our trade deficit with Vietnam has soared because so much of uh, we are importing so much from them right now. Mm. And it also matters because Vietnam is is now an exporter of capital. You may have heard of the VinFast, uh, which is trying to compete with Tesla in establishing mm. uh, electric vehicles. Uh, just in the 
past week, uh, VinFast secured $4 billion to establish a factory in the United States for production. So Vietnam is a key economic player um, during the COVID pandemic. Their handling of the pandemic in the first year, year and a half was so exemplary that they were the only country in Southeast Asia that had positive economic growth. Um, their factories stayed open because the country was not under chronic lockdown. Hmm. Now, why they have corruption, uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, the, the first is, look, it's still a communist uh, governed country. It is a one party system. Um, that uh, where the state still has way too much influence and control over the economy. There are too many state-owned enterprises that are inefficient, that are not transparent. Uh, we don't know much about uh, their, uh, 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 their, their ledger books. Hmm. Um, they have access to land and capital that the private sector just does not have. Mm. Um, and of course, there is the whole concern over the, the banking system. So much of that is still under state control. Um, and again, there's not a lot of transparency over the balance sheets of those banks. And, and were Vietnam to, to have a, a financial meltdown in the next few years, I would not be at all surprised. Mm. Um, it's not to say that there is not a private sector in Vietnam, there is, and it's it's very efficient and it's it's good, uh, but th there are still limits. The state dominates. Um, so that's the first reason for corruption. The, the second reason is the fact that there is still no free press in the country. Mm. There's no media that serves as that ombudsman, that watchdog um, to report on abuses. Now, it's not to say that the Vietnamese media does not get to report on corruption. Corruption. They often do, but it's very um, weaponized. Mm. So if you talk to Vietnamese journalists, they'll tell you, look, we have permission to go after this guy, but we don't have permission to go after that guy. Mm. And, and it usually comes down to the way, um, and, and your viewers would be more familiar with how Xi Jinping in China has weaponized anti-corruption That's right. Uh, to go after political rivals. And that's exactly what happens in Vietnam. Uh, they have used, uh, uh, really since uh, before the 12th Party Congress in 2016, they have used investigations to bring down the entire patronage network of the former Prime Minister, Wen Tanzun. Hmm. Now, Zach, again, before we tap into this political reasons, and I want to be more specific, let's talk about this economic surge. Within the article, again, something that you mentioned, and also you wrote an article, and I quote, that it was the only country in 2022 among Southeast Asian countries had a positive economic growth, which exports surging to $336.3 billion in 2021. Vietnam remained a darling of foreign investors, attracting over $150 billion between 2010 and 2019. Now, as you mentioned before, this was rather significant for Vietnam, especially during the pandemic. And we know that countries in Southeast Asia are actually in this competitive mood rather than collaborative strategies. So my next question to you is, since Vietnam, this economic growth boosted so much, 
does that make the country make more standout or make it more competitive with the largest economy such as China with the US? And again, you mentioned this collaboration between the West and Vietnam, but what about China? Again, we know that China has a direct influence over the countries in Southeast Asia. So with what you said, did that or does that put Vietnam in this competitive mood or mode with economy such as China? What's your take on that? So China is Vietnam's largest trading partner, as, as it is for every country in Southeast Asia. China looms very large uh, in this economy. Um, but it doesn't all mean that it's good. For one thing, Vietnam always runs a trade deficit with mm. China. Uh, they just, China dumps products in the country. Uh, often China weaponizes trade. So when they're angry at Vietnam, they shut down border trade. And you can see uh, lorry after lorry of, of, you know, Vietnamese products, you know, being rotting in, in the heat as they can't get across the border. And, and China does this um, for several countries in Southeast Asia when it feels in the mood to do so or wants to punish states. Um, part of Vietnam, especially the uh, area around Haiphong, the Greater Hanoi Haiphong Corridor, actually is part of the global supply chain um, and southern China supply chain. Mm. So um, it does have important economic ties with China. There is an interdependence. I think one of the, the greater concerns, though, in Vietnam is that they get very frustrated with Chinese investment in, in Vietnam. Uh, for the most part, China is still investing in resource extraction in the country, mm -hmm. things like bauxite mines, which are very dirty and polluting members. And, um, you know, versus the United States with corporations like Intel that are putting in, you know, almost $2 billion of, of uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Um, so there's a very different uh, type of, of not just quantity of investment, but quality of investment. Mm. Uh, Chinese firms are not known to be good at all when it comes to uh, corporate uh, uh, citizenship and supporting a local economy. Uh, Chinese firms are notorious for uh, paying bribes and getting uh, 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 access to uh, uh, officials and, and, you know, undermining the rule of law in countries wherever they go. Um, so Vietnam has this very tenuous relationship with, with China. Um, trade is important, um, but they're also very concerned about the growing amount of debt to China. Mm. Um, Vietnam has largely issued um, uh, BRI projects in uh, from China. Uh, it's not nowhere close to to a Malaysia or even in Indonesia. Um, but Vietnam still has around three hundred billion dollars uh, in uh, a public debt to China, uh, and of course, um, excuse me. Uh, 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 total debt is is now three hundred billion. Their their debt to China. Uh, is uh, around $16.3 billion. Mm. Um, but of course, Vietnam also has what, what is referred to as hidden debt to China. And that is not all Chinese lending is at the state level, that it is, um, you know, that it's uh, from sovereign government to sovereign government and that it is uh, tends not to be 
you have to put down collateral for mm. it. Uh, that, that would be seen as unseemly. But there's a lot of state-owned enterprise to state-owned enterprise lending, state-owned bank to state-owned bank lending, and that accounts to around 3% of Vietnam's GDP. So their debt load to China is much greater uh, than people realize or the government would like to publicly acknowledge. Hmm. Zach, you know, I'm very glad that you mentioned this Belt and Road Initiative, also known as BRI. And we know that the year 2022 it's such a significant year for China because it actually marks the 10th year anniversary of this Belt and Road Initiative. And again, based on what you said, you're right. Vietnam was one of the key players, or Continue is a key player for this Belt and Road Initiative for China. Again, consider more than hundred, more than hundreds of countries under this project. Now, my next question to you is, since Vietnam still has a lot more debt in China, or in other words, this, again, re regarding this trading partnership between the two countries, but Neil, I want to know, how does the Ch uh, Vietnamese government see this relationship with the Chinese government or even with the Chinese leader? Again, given the fact that two countries are also running on this communist ideology or on this communist philosophy, no one would like to be enemies with another person or with another country at this moment. But meanwhile, how is the Vietnamese government balancing the political and also this economic relationship with China at this moment. Yeah, China poses the greatest challenge to Vietnam on so many different levels. Uh, on the one hand, they have uh, a long-standing historical grudge. Uh, China did occupy northern Vietnam for a thousand years. It was a province of China. That's right. Uh, Vietnam had to uh, uh, engage in a tributary relationship with China and pay tribute to the uh, celestial emperor. Um, so the Vietnamese are, are fiercely independent. They have fought wars against the French, the American, the Chinese to maintain their independence. So they're, they're always wary of Chinese pressure on them. And the reality is China has all the tools in the toolbox, not just military pressure, but they can engage in all sorts of cyber operations against Vietnam, border trade, shutting it down, um, putting, uh, uh, getting involved in Vietnam's backyard in Laos and Cambodia, for example. Um, so China really does have a lot of tools at their disposal. Uh, to wield against Vietnam that they really see as a, a, a lower country, not a sovereign equal. Mm. Um, now, Vietnam also has territorial disputes with China. They have the bilateral dispute over the Paracel Islands, and they That's have a right. multilateral dispute over the Spratly Islands. Um, and the Vietnamese should be very concerned about China's uh, actions uh, in the South China Sea, which are largely geared towards them. Um, we focus a lot on the potential of Chinese military operations against Taiwan, especially in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, to me, this seems absolutely uh, unlikely because the Chinese have not fought a war since 1979 mm. and against Vietnam when they uh, were humiliated. That's right. Um, China has without a doubt, uh, modernized its military very effectively. There are all sorts of new weapons and platforms. However, 
uh, they've never used them in kinetic operations. And, and we just do not know how well their command and control, mm. their discipline, what happens when they're not training. It's very different when, when your radar and communications are being jammed and you're getting shot. So we just don't know how China will operate. The logistics supply lines uh, that would be needed to deal with Taiwan are very different. And so I think uh, all of this, if China could not guarantee a a commanding and decisive victory over Taiwan, it would be a disaster for Xi Jinping and the military leadership. So I think the Vietnamese, I personally think that the way that the Chinese start to practice and rehearse for complex joint military operations using maritime, air, uh, land assets, uh, rocket forces, uh, cyber operations, is by targeting a smaller adversary like Vietnam where they could ratchet up the uh, pressure and then ratchet it down should things not go well or they want to resolve it quickly. So I think the Vietnamese are very aware that they remain uh, in, uh, 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 in China's sights. Now, of course, they have the complex economic relationship uh, as well. But then, as you said, there is this whole relationship based on fraternal communism. Mm. China does not want to do anything that would lead to the collapse of the Vietnam Communist Party. Um, and that leaves the Communist Party very vulnerable. Uh, if they're forced to uh, uh, bow down or, or cannot stop Chinese aggression, so for example, in 2014, China parked their largest offshore oil rig on Vietnam's continental shelf. Um, there's little Vietnam can do about this. The public is demands the Communist Party respond, and it makes the Communist Party look weak and ineffective. Mm. And so. China has to tread this this their own fine line. They can't bully the Vietnamese too much without fear that the Communist Party could become fully delegitimized. Mm. So it's it's a very complex relationship. Um, you know, the, the party to party channels between the two countries are very important. So you can see the foreign ministries talk about certain things. You can see the bilateral military exchanges happen, but where decisions and, and very sensitive ones take place are at the party to party level. Zach, I want to bring in another country, which is called the Philippines, into the conversation before we move on to the next session of the article. Since you addressed the issue regarding South China Sea, and we know this maritime territory has been very much in dispute among the, uh, among the countries in Southeast Asia, particularly with China. But meanwhile, that you know this as much as I do, that currently uh, the country of the Philippines elected a brand new leader that based on the rumor that actually favors the Chinese government. So in other words, this person Marcos has not expressed any, I guess I want to be careful right here, it's political discourse satisfied attitude towards China. So in other words, when the International Tribunal Court decided regarding the South China Sea territory, back in the days, Duterte was the president. He was very generous to, quote, give that area to China, you know, in, in, in return to receive a lot more benefits. But right now, if the Philippines are being uh, I guess sit as a bench player on the sideline 
why it still matters to the country of Vietnam to address the issue such as South China Sea. So in other words, if Philippines does not even bother to address this issue, why even Vietnam willing to step in, continue uh, uh, or this uh, this rivalry with China over this territory? What do you say to that? So let's start with the orbital ruling of 2016. First of all, it was the most definitive ruling on the law of the sea ever. And what that ruling did was, was several fold. I'll, let me quickly summarize. Sure. It basically invalidated China's nine dash line. It said that there was not a feature in the South China Sea that could be categorized as a legal island, which gets entitlements, 12 nautical mile mm. uh, a territorial sea or a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. And finally, the ruling basically said China's claims to this territory based on historical usage doesn't deny the fact that Vietnamese fishermen, Philippine fishermen, Indonesian fishermen also use these islands and waters traditionally. So China was humiliated in this ruling and they completely locked out when Rodrigo Duterte was elected president in the Philippines and he immediately shelved the ruling. And he did so for two real reasons. The first is a fundamental mistrust that America was actually going to live up to its treaty obligations to defend the country. And secondly, he basically thought, if I shelve this ruling um, that uh, uh, China will shower the Philippines with development projects, BRI uh, uh, projects, uh, lending, uh, foreign investment. Mm. And the reality is China delivered pennies on the dollars promised. Mm. You know, Xi Jinping went to China, uh, to the Philippines very early on. All There was all this fanfare very little was delivered. I mean, the Philippines basically ceded national sovereignty uh, and got nothing in return. Um, and the hard thing is, look, with international law, enforcement is hard. You really need the international community to support your ruling. And when Duterte shelled the ruling, no one else basically used that ruling as the basis of their own claims. The, in uh, Vietnam, kind of couldn't make much about that ruling, even though it was very good for them, uh, what the court ruled. Um, and so, you know, we lost six years under Duterte, um, even though he started to change his, his views on this. Uh, newly elected President Bangbang Marcos has said that the 2006 ruling will be the basis of Philippine policy, but who knows? Again, mm. he's lost six years of momentum trying to get countries to now use that uh, 2016 ruling as the basis. Uh, it doesn't seem terribly likely to me. And of course, the Philippines is remains very vulnerable to China and very dependent on China. Mm. So how hard they push this. Um, the real problem in the South China or regarding the South China Sea is that you have these different claims, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam, the Philippines, and there has been, un they've never been able to come up with a common negotiating position, mm. right? They want China to buy into this very vague code of conduct. Um, and China has violated its own declaration of conduct that it reached with ASEAN years ago in terms of building islands and weaponizing them. Until the ASEAN states can resolve their own territorial disputes, 
and the dispute between Malaysia and Philippines over Sabah is playing itself out right now in courts in Europe mm. uh, with, with the seizure of Malaysian assets by the descendants of the Sultan of Sulu. I mean, that seems very unlikely to me, and this is just perfect for China. They, they just like the Southeast Asian states to be divided on this issue, and China never has to deal with them in a multilateral way, but can pick them apart one by one. Mm. Um, and China's very good at turning up the pressure on one country and dialing it back on another country. And then it, it changes. And so uh, I imagine they will go easy on the Philippines in the coming uh, year uh, with the new presidency trying to, to sound him out. But you might see more pressure on Vietnam. We've definitely seen a lot more pressure on Indonesia this year which claims right. not to be a claimant to the South China Sea. But of course, China's nine dash line goes through uh, the Natuna exclusive economic zone, which is a very important offshore uh, gas field. Mm. Zach, I want to move on to the next part of the conversation. Again, going back to the article that you wrote, and I quote, the societal cost of a longer lived retirement age population will be enormous. Today, 7.5% of the population in Vietnam is 65 or over. By 2050, the number will nearly triple to 20.5%. Now, we know that regarding this uh, um, aging population, not only it's causing this economic concern for Vietnam, but also for China, any other countries as well. But particularly, particularly regarding Vietnam, Zach, can you help us to understand how does this matter related to this political corruption today? So in other words, why would you think it's important to put this piece of information also under this title? Can you help us? Yeah. Um, demographics is destiny, and we can look at countries like Japan or South Korea whose populations are imploding and the challenge that's going to put the number of uh, people working age that they uh, uh, go to supporting the elderly is in, in Japan and South Korea has gone from about six per one retiree mm -hmm. down to two. So there are huge burdens and that limits the amount of money that the state has for defense and, and other issues uh, uh, that it might care about. Um, elderly populations are very costly, even if uh, the governments don't pay uh, that much in terms of actual direct benefits. Um, Vietnam is uh, a developing country, and their population is going to max out in about a decade uh, at 110 million people, which sounds like a lot, but all of a sudden their population is going to start contracting. Vietnam will still be a developing country at that time, so they're going to start to have first world demographic problems with a developing or middle income country's economy. Right? So you're going to get a, a triple the size of a retiree population. So you're going to have all the financial liabilities that entails, whether it's pensions or healthcare costs uh, or people that are not paying taxes because they're retired. You're going to have a much smaller tax base to pay for all the things Vietnam needs, infrastructure, improving public health, improving tertiary education, their defense, uh, uh, electrification, power, uh, 
uh, industrialization, all those things. And at the same time, you're going to have a much smaller population that drives domestic consumption, which, of course, is the key part of any modern economy. It's not exports. Mm. And so Vietnam has some real challenges, and they would be very uh, wise to look at the challenges Thailand has gone through this. Um, you know, Thailand's about a generation ahead of Vietnam on this. But again, this is a country that has first world uh, demographic problems on a middle income uh, salary. And, and Thailand, uh, their labor force is becoming much more expensive, much less competitive. Um, uh, and this is going to have real economic impacts down the road. Mm. Zach, I know you're very busy. Now, I got two more questions before letting you go, and I want to talk about your book, which is entitled Forging Peace in Southeast Asia, Insurgencies, Peace Processes, and Reconciliation. Now, for example, let's look at some of the countries in Southeast Asia today. For example, again, Vietnam, and particularly Myanmar, you know, Thailand. Every single country I just mentioned are undergoing some sorts of political shift, particularly uh, the country of Myanmar. Now, help us to understand, what can we say regarding this peace processes or reconciliation f uh, 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 happening in countries such as Myanmar? Can we expect the country will be restored back to normal? Because we have seen that military junta took over the government several years ago, and also that caused the greater concern for a lot more countries in Southeast Asia, even China could not be silent anymore regarding this issue. So help us to understand what can we expect regarding the country of Myanmar and how difficult it is today for us to understand the work of peace within this region. Yeah. Um, let me start by saying every country in Southeast Asia has had their own internal security challenges. Most of those countries have faced, you know, far greater concerns from communist insurgencies or secessionist insurgencies within their border than external security. And what I did in that book was I studied three different countries. And, you know, the bottom line is no government really can defeat a legitimate broad-based popular insurgency at some point there has to be a negotiated settlement. So I wanted to understand how those settlements happen, what, what's the secret sauce in, in making them work, uh, whether domestically, internationally, what, is it part of a broader socio-political economic transformation of the country? Uh, what are the, the uh, modus vivendi for these peace processes to work? How do rebel groups transition into being political actors? How do you deal with transitional justice? The one country I wanted to cover in that book but did not because the complexity of it and the time it would have entailed was, of course, Myanmar. Myanmar has been at war with itself since its founding in 1948. There has never been a day of peace in Myanmar. Never. Uh, they've had communist insurgencies, they've had ethno-linguistic uh, ethnic armed organizations throughout the border regions of the country uh, fighting. The government has, over time, and, and mostly under an authoritarian rule, 
done a very effective job at dividing and conquering these groups. They, again, they can go after one group and ease off on one another. They can sign temporary ceasefires. But the military has never had an interest in actually coming to a durable political solution that involves devolution of political and economic powers. There has never been a pathway to autonomy. Um, now we get to, of course, after a period of democratization, uh, after the 2015 uh, elections in, in Myanmar, the NLD, and they recently in November 2020, uh, one by an even larger margin than they had five years before. And the military uh, was very concerned that, that the opposition was getting very close, or not the opposition, the, the government, was getting very close to being able to secure that 75% uh, of votes in parliament to amend the constitution and strip away the military's political and economic powers. And so in February 2021, they staged a coup d'etat. And it's been a disaster for the country, mm. an absolute disaster. The economy contracted 18% in 2021. Half the population now is living under the poverty line. Uh, exports dried up, foreign investment disappeared. Uh, the country is now imposing currency controls because they're in such dire straits. Inflation is soaring. Um, there, the military is so incompetent when it comes to running the economy. And then, of course, the fact is they're at war with their population. Just in the cities alone, they've killed 4,000 uh, people, 14,000 anti-coup activists have been arrested. 50 people have been tortured to death, at least in government custody. And that doesn't even include the wars against the different ethnic armed organizations, some of which have supported the shadow government, the, the exiled government known as the National Unity Government, some of which are kind of waiting to see which way the chips land. But right now, the uh, opposition, the NUG controls around 15% of the country. The ethnic armed organizations control about 35% of the country. So the military's uh, actual control is getting slim. And for the first time, they have to be able to control line, supply lines in uh, the Bama, the ethnic Burmese heartland that they never mm. used to. You know, they could always fight out in the outer areas, but now they're at war with their own Burmese population, you know, which comprises around 60% of the population. So, you know, the, it's such a disaster in Myanmar. Uh, the If we are to have a peace process there, the reality is the NUG has to win. Right. Mm. Their official position is that the goal of this revolution, the spring revolution, is not just to defeat the military backed regime, but it's to transform the military's role in society, i.e. not having any political role, sending them back to barracks, but more importantly, turning Myanmar into a federal democratic system where mm. there is considerable devolution of economic and political powers. They have to end these insurgencies. And so that promise of federalism is one of the ways that the NUG has been able to win over the support and active 
a partnership with groups like the Kachin, the Karenis, the Karen National Liberation Army, and possibly the Arakan Army. Mm. Um, so without the defeat of the military-backed regime, there is no peace process to talk about in Myanmar. Zach, I want to wrap up our conversation again, going back to your book. Now, another keyword that you used as a title, the word is called reconciliation. And also, just now briefly, you touch on the word democracy. And we know today, because the war in Ukraine, that actually served as a reminder how important and crucial it is for every single country on the planet to preserve and protect the value of democracy and so that where the country can be unified to fight against the unprecedented or unexpected invaders. Now, going back to the word reconciliation, what can we do? So in other words, what can the countries in Southeast Asia, again, such as Burma, Burma, such as Vietnam, you know, any other countries, what can they do in a more practical, in a more feasible, realistic way in order to preserve and protect the value of democracy? So in other words, is it to sh to change the ideology of the country or to change the government, the political system, or it's time for the U.S. to step in to create another intervention so that the country will be put back on the right track? Help us. That's a, a huge question. I always come down to this. When you look at the issues of political violence, whether it's it's just small-scale violence in the streets or political assassination, you kind of ratchet it up all the way to, to a broad-based insurgency, armed resistance against the government. It always comes down to governance, mm. right? Insurgency is about governance. Political violence is about governance. It's about having voice in the system. It's about being heard. It's about having a sense of efficacy that, that your voice matters. And unfortunately, across Southeast Asia, we've seen huge democratic reversals in the past few years. Obviously, Myanmar with a military coup is a, a, a case in point. Um, but, you know, in the Philippines, you saw Duterte with his populist presidency um, and his war on drugs, which led to over 30,000 extrajudicial killings, right? right? No rule of law, no, no oversight, no judicial oversight. This is so deleterious to, to a functioning democracy. We've seen attacks on free press. You know, we had last year the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Maria Ressa. Why is a journalist from technically a democracy winning a Nobel Prize? We should ask real questions because of the assaults on the media, the weaponization of social media going after journalists. So we've seen attacks on the free press in Malaysia, in Myanmar, in Vietnam, in the Philippines. Um, governments matters. Uh, there's been, unfortunately, after uh, real progress in, in Malaysia, which in 2018 finally looked like it was getting past its race-based uh, 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 system of politics, uh, that they were going to enter a period of post-sectarianism. Nope, they're right back to it and, and some real reversals. Without the free press, 
without democracy you get autocrats mm. and they operate in their own interests um they muzzle the press uh they govern uh, uh for uh the small group of supporters around them growth tends to be concentrated in the hands of the uh wealthiest part of society so it's no surprise when you look at gini coefficients southeast asian countries are amongst the most unequal in the world mm. um this is not good when it comes for long-term political stability and development and all of these countries have real challenges ahead it's a competitive global marketplace um and yet the governments uh, uh are not always making the best decisions or ruling in the name of the people they tend to be very corrupt and self-serving i think zach throughout the entire conversation there are many significant points that help us to understand regarding this political and economic corruption and across the continent but also help us to understand appreciate the important concept of democracy now ladies and gentlemen i'm speaking to dr zachary abuza and zachary it's a professor at the national war college in washington dc where he focuses on southeast asian politics and security issues including governance insurgencies human rights and many important issues of course that i encourage everyone to check out his book it's entitled forging peace in southeast asia insurgencies peace processes and reconciliation now zach thank you so much for taking your time to join the show it's been a pleasure speaking to you and we'd love to have you back on the show again as we continue to follow this political and economic changes not only in vietnam but also across the continent thank you sir really appreciate your